Blog Talk Radio. Challenging, thought-provoking, insightful. This is the Ninja Pastor with Sunday's God in Country with Dr. Sean. Hosted by nationally known speaker, Reverend Dr. Sean Michael Greener. Not your typical reverend. Dr. Sean is a proud U.S. military veteran, former law enforcement officer, founder of the internationally regarded executive protection team. Through his riveting national speaking, this ninja pastor tells it like it is. This show is biblically and politically engaged in the battle to save our country, with a pedal to the metal, with this Sunday's edition of Sundays with Dr. Sean. Buckle up. Here's your host, the author of the critically acclaimed book, Excellence Killed the Church, How Mediocrity is Destroying America, Reverend Dr. Sean, the Ninja Pastor, with today's message. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the live audience and the uh, folks that have joined us here. We, um, I think today is probably one of our health, more healthful meals. Uh, we had matzah, and what else, What do we have over there? Matzah, we had uh, homemade coleslaw, a whole big vat of it. Um, we had chicken chicken casserole, meh. oh, cheesesteak casserole, which is very good. And then we also, of course, had all-natural ice cream, watermelon, strawberries, and some sort of shortcake deal there that was just made that was awesome, and it went quick. So if you if you didn't get here, you didn't get any, so too bad for you. Hey, so a couple of announcements, then we're going to get right into the message tonight because I don't want don't to miss a thing, and I don't want you to miss a thing. Um, Tuesday, normally we have, remember we had a Monday show, and then we went to Wednesday. Um, this Tuesday is going to be a special broadcast. Last Wednesday we were supposed to have Dr. Stephen Gorka, uh, Sebastian Gorka on, and he couldn't be on last minute. He And, of course, as all of you know, he was on television essentially all day and all night on Wednesday. He was actually on television during the show. So that's what he's, you know, that's what he's got to do. That's what he does. Um, his book, Defeating Jihad, uh, just finished it this morning. Fantastic. Fantastic book. If you Google Dr. Stephen, uh, Sebastian Gorka, uh, you will you will find his book and his websites, and it's quite a presence, uh, internationally recognized, and easily one of the best voices out there. So he'll be on on Tuesday. Very special episode Tuesday. The entire show is dedicated to him dealing with Islam and how what our country is doing now, what our government is doing now, how the DNC and the RNC um, impact our safety and security as a nation. So don't forget that. Next thing, we told the live audience, those of you who are normally in our live audience but are traveling or camping or whatever it is you're doing today, um, missing out on strawberry shortcake, and that's what you're doing essentially. Now I'll get a bunch of pictures from people from their campsites, all the camp food that they're eating, and then I'll feel bad. But, uh, but remember, next Sunday, Next Sunday, we are, we are not meeting in our normal location. We're meeting in our Middletown location. And uh, what you do is if you want to attend the uh, state constitution class with Mr. Mark Herr, President, Center for Self-Governance, you go to centerforselfgovernance.com. Uh, 
and you go up and register. It's the state of Delaware. You'll be given the address and everything. It's in the Middletown, Delaware area. Um, you'll be given that address once you register. It's $25, worth it at 10 times the price. I'll tell you the truth. It's going to be a great impact. We can only seat so many, so the sooner you register, the better chance you have of getting into the class. We have Center for Self-Governance classes the following and then the day after that. Uh, and they're both in Dover, same location in Dover. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to meet, uh, absolutely gorgeous. We have good parking, all of these things. Um, it's fantastic, level one and level two. So we're not playing around. Center for Self-Governance has made a commitment to the state of Delaware. So if you're in Delaware, Maryland, or Pennsylvania, and you've been yearning for these classes, which you should be because it's all about freedom and liberty, then what you need to do is come to the Delaware one. It's not far. Dover, Delaware is not far at all. Okay, the most important question, if we get all that, everybody get all that in the radio land, everybody's raised their hands, I see that. Welcome to all the folks in chat. Thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you. And I hope that my sound is good, so maybe you, can, you guys can be, we're trying a totally different technology. Uh, well, we tried it last week where we had a strong cell signal. We don't know how good our signal is this week, so maybe you can let us know, and hopefully it'll be good. So you're now unpaid technical engineers if you'd be willing to take that job, which has zero benefits. Thank you, Obamacare. So Acts 16, uh, that's where we're going to be tonight, Acts 16. And I'm going to be talking about the most important question of your life. The most important question of your life. We're going to be talking about the Philippian or the Roman jailer. Hang with me here. See if you can follow. Around midnight, Shaul and Silas, see that's Paul and Silas, but that's their real name, not the made-up names. Shaul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God while the other prisoners listened attentively. Let me go back. I'm sorry I must have misread, misread because I was whining like a, a, a spanked schoolgirl when my air conditioner went out for three days. I'm pretty sure I just read, around midnight, Shaul and Sila were praying and singing hymns to God while the others, other prisoners listened attentively. Who was their audience? Well, it's a captive audience. I'm sorry. I had to go there. It was a captive audience, right? You guys got that. That was a joke grenade. So it was a captive audience. Thank you, Steve, uh, for letting me know the sound is good. I appreciate it. Man, we're so so glad to have all of you guys in chat. It's an honor to have you. So they were they were praying and singing hymns to God while the other prisoners listened, not uh, ambivalently, but attentively. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake which shook the prison to its foundations. All the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. I want you to understand what prison was in a Roman jailer's mind. Prison was a place to be in pain. Prison was a place to bleed. Prison was not a place like we have today where you have television and you have, they barely, I don't think they even had 4G back then. So it's not a place, another joke grenade, you'll get it in a second. It's not a place where there was any comfort. This is a place where your, your skin was laid open with beatings. Your, your wrists and your ankles, because your weight was born on these shackles comfortably around your wrist and all the time. You were always. So you can imagine if you're chained to a wall 
literally chained to a wall. You have nowhere to use the facilities to relieve yourself. You eat what they throw you, what you can scavenge. It's not a place you want to go ever, and it's not a place where you're ambivalent. And it's certainly, I want to be clear, not a place where you would normally find yourself singing praises to God. And yet, they were there, and they were singing around midnight. So I just said in verse 26, I didn't say it, the Scripture said, suddenly there was a violent earthquake. I want you to understand that this violent earthquake wasn't a gentle rumbling like when someone starts up a Harley next to your Ford pickup. The screaming eagle pipes. That's, that's not what we're talking about, although that's a nice sound. It's not when you fire up your Cummins diesel when you're standing next to it. It's not that. That's a nice sound. Big horsepower, that's a great sound. That's a rumble. It's nice, but that's not what this was. This was a violent earthquake. Are you getting the picture? We're in a dark, dank prison around midnight. And as if they didn't have enough to worry about, now all of a sudden, the ground begins to shake. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake which shook the prison to its foundations. All the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Well, now we have a changing condition, don't we? You see, if that happened here in America in a max security prison, guess what? We'd have a real serious problem on our hands because what's the first thing someone who is held captive thinks about in the morning? Being free. What's the first thing around lunchtime the person who is held captive thinks about being free. The last thing they think about when they're finally able to go to sleep is being free. Man, what am I going to do when I get free? Wow, am I going to take advantage of any chance I can get to be free? If those doors are left unlocked, if that jailer leaves the key, if there's any chance I'm going to get out of this place, I'm going and I'm not playing around and I won't wait around. I'm leaving out of this place. I'm tired of captivity. You see, that's the real deal. That's the, that's the thing you have to remember. They are prisoners of an abusive, awful jailer within a terrible, unjust, horrific system. The jailer awoke, and when he saw the doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself for he assumed that the prisoners had escaped. But Shaul or Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Calling for the lights, the jailer ran and began to tremble and fell down in front of Shaul and Silas. Then leading them outside, he said, Now I, I want to remind you of something. There was just an earthquake. The buildings are made of mud and and, and those kind of building materials, and, you know, they don't withstand a whole lot of ground shaking. So they got to go outside, not for nothing. But he's hoping they don't run off now. How am I going to get all this? It's one guy. How am I going to keep all these people here? I'm sure some of this is going through his mind. But he's twisted up by this very real fact that he sees right in front of him they are still here, not just some of them, but all of them. So he says... He leads them outside, and the question he asks them is, why don't you fools run away from here? How come you stayed up in this place 
when I beat on you, if you'll reflect the pain you have in your neck and your back and your face and your arms and your legs and the sores you have, the infected sores you have on her from the chains, that's from me. I did that to you. Why did you stay? Are you people dumb? Wait, let me go back. Did I find that? No, I did not find that. I didn't find that. I did not find that. Here's what actually is there. Then leading them outside, he said, Men, what must I do to be saved? They said, Trust in the Lord Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. Wait a second. They were just locked up in prison. Unjustly as as can be. No doubt about it. The guy who tortured them and beat on them and put the open sores and flaps of skin on their back and the bruises and the pain and the swelling and the, the bloody mess, the guy that did that to them is now asking them, men, what must to be saved? Why did he ask that question? Why in the world would this man, who really, truly, up until the moment that ground, maybe not the moment the ground began to shake, we'll talk about that in a second, but up until the moment he thought the ground began to shake, he was in control. He was the master, they were the slave. He was the jailer, they were the captive. He was the something, they were the nothing. And yet he asked them, men, what must I do to be saved? Trust in the Lord Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. Whereupon they told him and everyone in his household the message about the Lord. Remember, this happened right about midnight. He didn't come in and say, hey, fellas, I'm glad you waited around because that saves me from getting killed because, you know, I lose a prisoner. They do, they, you know, blade right through the, you know how they are. They're going, to, they're going to kill me. Just as mean as I am to you, they're going to be to me. Just as ignorant as they are, as I am to you, they're going to be ignorant to me. As I don't care about you or anything, your families, your well-being, none of that stuff. That's how they are to me. I lose a prisoner, I pay. That wasn't what happened. He said, well, maybe we'll talk in the morning. You all just stay back in there. I'll sleep right here. You know, maybe there's a wall. Maybe we can kind of wall you in. In the morning, we'll talk about this, this about being safe. We'll wait a bit. Gosh, I'm tired. Feeding you people really wears me out. Not feeding you really wears me out. No, they went right then. The answer was simple. It wasn't some big, long thing. Well, you see, you're a Roman, and, well, we're Jews, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. You know, we've got to work on some stuff. We have to work on some things here. We have to, you have to learn some things. We have classes for you that you can take. And then when you're finished those classes, if you do well, then we'll tell you more. You're going to learn it little by little, really, because it's so complex. Well, that's not in the Scriptures. That's not what he said. Shaul and Silas, or Paul and Silas, simply said, Trust in the Lord Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. Whereupon they told him and everyone in his household the message about the Lord. They didn't stop the story there. They didn't say, hey, that's good that you're saved. How about you go home, new new Christian, new follower of the way? How How about you go home and tell your family? 
Guess what? As a Roman soldier, if he goes home to his family and he tells his family, hey, you know this new thing I learned from the prisoners? Not, instead of like in American prisons, Islam, it, there he learned about to follow the way of Christ from the men he imprisoned and tortured. Everyone. It was so important. It was so powerful. This one question was so important and so powerful, he had to tell everybody in his family. They went and they told them the message about the Lord. Then even at that late hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed off their wounds. Wait a second. He went from care. Did he give them any care? No. You, in a Roman prison, you don't, you don't get care. You're lucky to get scraps of food or whatever bugs you might be able to eat, whatever rodent you might be able to kill. He didn't care about them. He didn't care if you live or die. He went from being the abuser to the caregiver. The jailer went from giving pain to receiving joy. He went from little by little, bit by bit, stealing the life of these men to receiving life, capital L. And then he did the thing that no Roman would ever do. He washed their wounds, which he caused. And without delay, he and all his people were immersed. Wait a second. They didn't just say, well, listen, we're going to have a class on baptism. We're going to do this baptism class. And when we're finished this baptism class, should be six, seven weeks. That's how long we... We, we Christians do it. We'll do it for six, seven weeks. And at the end, if you answer all your questions correctly, guess what we're going to do? We're going to dunk you in the water, and you will be baptized. That's what we're going to do. We're wait. That's what the Scripture says. Is that what it says? No, it's not. It says, and without delay, he and all his people were immersed. They, he immediately said, I have gone from being this man, and we have gone from being this kind of family to being this kind of man, a follower of the way of Christ. And you know what? I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the lingo. I don't know all the verses. I don't even know how to dress like a Christian yet. But what I know is that you have told me how I could be saved. I have done it. My family has done it. And now we must go in obedience and be immersed. We must be baptized. After that, it's not over yet. This is a very busy evening, I'll have you know. Remember, this started around midnight. After that, he brought them up to his house and set food in front of them. And he and his entire household celebrated their having come to trust in God. The next morning, the judges sent police officers with the order, release those men. The jailer told Shaul, the judges have sent word to release both of you, so come out and go on your way in peace. He thought it was good news. But Shaul said to these officers, said to the officers, after flogging us in public when we hadn't been convicted of any crime and our Roman citizens, they threw us in prison. Now they want to get rid of us secretly? Oh, no. Let them come and escort us out themselves. Listen, we've got to own some stuff. The story doesn't end when you're done wrong and the person comes up to you that did you wrong, comes up to you quietly and says, you know, I... I did you a little bit wrong. I wasn't quite as good as I could be. And you know what? I'm going to just, you just, let's just go on and pretend nothing happened. Let's just pretend you just go on. I've taken the shackles off. 
you just you just go ahead, go on. What difference at this point does it make? I heard somebody famous say. They say, oh, no, you're going to come escort us yourselves. You better own it. The officers reported these words to the judges who became frightened when they heard that Shaul and Sila were Roman citizens. They came and apologized to them. Then after escorting them out, they requested them to leave the city. From the prison, they went to Lydia's house. And after seeing and encouraging the brothers, they departed. What must I do to be saved? This question was asked by a startled jailer. He was amid strange and perplexed happenings. These were things he'd never seen before. He had just seen wonderful sights. In one moment, he feels the earth shake. You don't think he could hear Paul, Shaul, and Silas, Paul and Silas, singing and praying? He didn't ever have anybody up in that prison singing and praying? Who is this God that these men pray to when they're hanging off a wall with their arms and their legs behind them? Bleeding, hungry, abused. Who is this God? Who is this God that is so amazing and so powerful that they're going to sing hymns and pray to him and praise him? Such that I imagine he thought, man, they're singing, shook this place. He'd seen strange and perplexing things. He'd seen wonderful things. He was being shaken by unfamiliar terrors. How many of you here in the live audience and how many of you out in Radioland all around the world, how many of you right now are dealing with unfamiliar territory, unfamiliar terrors? You don't know if you can do it. You just don't know. It's an area that you've never been in before. You just don't know. You've not seen it. You've not experienced it. You have no history to show that you can do this. But you have God. But you have God. You, this man didn't have God. When these terrors came upon him of all these terrible things, let alone, folks, it was an earthquake. They're not fun. They're not comforting. This man had an earthquake in his life just like the, the jailed followers of the way did. All these prisoners, they dealt with that earthquake too, but they couldn't go underneath a desk or some kind of business. They were chained to a wall. But then their chains broke free. Listen, when we have unfamiliar terrors come upon us, when we have strange and amazing and perplexing things that we just don't understand, and even when sometimes God blesses us and we see this wonderful sight, we have questions. We have questions afterward. Listen, if all that happened to you in the space of a few minutes, you'd have questions, wouldn't you? Somebody, amen. I would. This jailer, he, 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 he didn't ask what I thought. He would ask. He didn't ask what I know I would ask. He asked the infinitely wise question, what must I do to be saved? But this jailer's not the only man that's, listen, he's not the only one ever asked this question. He's not the first man that asked it. This is a universal question. All around the world right now, there's people listening to my voice. I don't know why, but they are. And they're listening to my voice, and they're asking themselves a million questions. Man, can I do this new job? Man, can I handle this, this child that's wearing me out, has got problems? Can I, can I handle all the trials and struggles of life? 
you know, busy moms. Busy moms are out there trying to do everything. Now, listen, I high five to you moms out there trying to do everything, trying to make it perfect, trying to make everything work out. There's people right now that I know personally that are in a, a totally different new environment. They're trying to work out a new job, and they're, they're, they're only there for a brief period of time, but it's confusing. It's a different environment. They're, they're nervous, and they're afraid, and they want to fit in, and they want to do well. I know other people that are about to start a new job, and they're thinking, man, oh, man, I know people right now that are about to start a, a new treatment for cancer. I know people right now who are facing the biggest challenges of their life, and you're understandably going to ask questions, very important questions, but it's not the most important question. You see, how must I be saved? What must I do to be saved? This is the universal question. Men of all times and men of all races, all socioeconomic strata, they've asked and they've sought an answer to this question. Listen, the Greeks, the so very cultured Greeks, they tried to answer it by building altars to many, many small g gods. Then realizing that they had missed the mark, they hadn't figured it out, they sought further by building an altar to an unknown god. You see, it was in an effort to answer this question that children were once sacrificed to the fire god Moloch. It's the struggle to answer the same question that causes the Indian mother Every day in India, my daughter just returned from India, and I can tell you, every day in India, in modern-day India, causes a mother to cast her baby into the Ganges River because they believe that that is somehow holy, and that's going to elevate them to another level. It's going to take them to another level in their system. And she throws the baby into the river, and all that happens is that nasty river swallows up that living baby, and steals the breath and the life out of the lungs of that child. And she goes home, and she awaits the gods lifting her, elevating her and her family. But she really goes home with empty arms and an empty heart. I heard a missionary from the heart of Africa say some years ago that he used to live among the savage tribes of the far interior, They were the people of the lowest type. They wore no shreds of clothing. They didn't wear clothing, and they didn't care. But in their wild and barbarous religious ceremonies and dances, they'd swing around, they'd jump, they'd slam into each other, they'd run through fire, they'd do all these things until they their mouth and fell down rigid. It was their way, said this missionary that I talked to, of asking the supreme question, what must I do to be saved You see, this was a dramatic moment in this jailer's life. This was the seminal moment in this jailer's life. It was a moment full of blessing. But I want you to look at this picture in context. Context is king. Little things don't mean a lot. They mean everything. Two strange preachers have just come to this Roman city of Philippi. Their preaching has brought them immediately and completely and totally in conflict with all of the authorities. They're drawn before the magistrates. They're brought before the the muckety-mucks. And in that process, their clothing is ripped from their bodies, and they are severely. It seems that this would have been shame enough and pain enough, but it wasn't. They were then turned over to a callous and cruel Roman jailer with the order that he should keep them. Show them who's boss. Show them who the Jews are. Show them who the Romans are. 
So he threw them into the inner dungeon, not even the outer one where they could see the light of day, but in the inner dungeon where it's dark, pitch black, it's dank, and it smells of feces and urine and blood and rot and infection and living and dead rodents. The place was foul and it was cold and their feet and hands were in the, in the stocks. They couldn't move around. They couldn't stretch Their backs were lacerated and bleeding. And this was their reward for seeking to bring men the unsearchable riches of the Hamashiach, of the Messiah. This is what they got for doing it. And yet they went and they sang around midnight, praying and singing hymns. Wait a second. We do a good thing and then we think, what's going to come to us? A good thing. No one could argue that this was a good thing. No one could say with a straight face, yeah, you getting thrown in prison, that was was the hand of God. Lucky you. Now, it was dark enough for these two, but they didn't lose heart. Paul and Silas, Shaul and Silas, they didn't lose heart. First, what did they do? I say this all the time. They prayed. I can imagine they prayed secretly, and then they prayed aloud. First, they prayed their private prayer, and then they prayed aloud. And those people in prison heard the voice of prayer, possibly for the very first time. Now, real prayer, I'm going to tell you, always makes a difference. You say, why don't my prayers make a difference? Because your prayers aren't real. Hesitant faith is no faith at all. Praying as though the ceiling is all that hears you, hoping that God above hears you, isn't prayer. Praying is uttering your heart and your soul to the living God and knowing in whom you believe. Real prayer always makes things different. It brings us to a consciousness of God. Remember what I frequently say, mankind is called in Hebrew, nephesh, the being that prays, literally the being that prays. And so as these men prayed and as their heart grew warm and joyous, Maybe until they died. We don't know. We don't know what awaited them if they stayed in that jail. We don't know what end they might come to if they stayed in that jail. Have you ever thought these men weren't praying, hey, hey the Lord going to bring us an earthquake and we're going to be set free out of this place. Tomorrow we only got to do it. Look, I can make it till tomorrow. Right? No. They didn't know what was coming. God didn't tell them what was happening. All they knew is be faithful. And pray. I don't know what's around the corner, but God knows what's around the corner. Be faithful. Even when you don't see the end being a beautiful thing, be faithful. And pray not as though God is real, but because God is real. And when you do, real prayer changes everything. You see, their hearts grew warm. It filled their soul despite their condition, and then they began to praise, and then they began to sing. You know, I've often wondered what songs they sang. You all know I like to sing. I like to sing a little bit, but I wonder what they sang. It might have been the 23rd Psalm, or or they might have sung, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Or what about maybe the 37th Psalm? 
would have sounded well in the darkness of that hideous dungeon. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. It's most likely of all, I think it's probably the 46th Psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. When you don't see how it's going to work out, you have got to stay in intense contact with the Father. You've got to, you've got to, you can't crawl up into a shell and do crazy things that you think are going to bring comfort to you. No, the thing you do is reach out to God. Pray to God. Remember his scriptures. Pray his scriptures. Listen, you can't pray what you don't know. Read the scriptures. Fill your mind and your body with the things of God. And those things that seek to give you fear, they don't have a place in your heart because you filled it full of God. Full of God. Whatever they sang, I'm sure it was great singing. I would have No, I wouldn't have loved to have been there. I don't want to be in prison. But I'm telling you, have you caught yourself through my message tonight wondering, man, what kind of power is that to be around that kind of power? But sometimes, my friends, in order to feel that kind of power happen, in order to feel that kind of miraculous movement of the living God, not an living God, the amazing God, not an amazing God, you have to go into a dark place. You think, Life is smooth and easy? No, it's not. All of you in here could raise both hands. We have cancer survivors front to back. We have people who have lost husbands and lost spouses. We have people that have to worry about their husband coming home from war. We have people that have battled back from addiction. We have people that have battled back from all kinds of things, some things none of us in this room even know. And all across this world, listening to me now, you are battling against things that nobody else knows and you think that you're alone but you're not i assure you you're not alone hallelujah you are not alone there is no need for you to feel alone because you are not alone you are loved by the almighty you are a child of the almighty god there is nothing that can come against you because you are his and the news i have to share with you is you are his and he is yours it is an agreement be broken. I think the angels opened the windows. Maybe even they Facebook lived or tweeted, live tweeted what the singing when they heard it. That could be. It might have happened. Either way, I think that it made a very heart of our Lord glad. He said, look at my boys down there. Look at my boys down there. It's tough. Man, they are in the thick of it. I did not expect them to be praising me. I didn't expect them to be singing praises to me. They weren't mad at him. They weren't mad at anybody. They were in that moment, and they were doing the very best they could do in that moment. Part of the reason why we struggle so much as postmodern emergent Christians, as, as people of the modern world, is we are always living in the next moment. We're always living in the next moment. We're missing everything here. Be fully and completely where you are. But know and trust the God to whom you pray is real, and he cares about you. You matter to him, and it will be okay if he has his hand on you. You see, 
It was a surprise to see those in that gloomy, dark, dank prison praising God. Everyone in that prison heard the walls echoing, groaning, and shrieks and cries of terror. They heard bitter oaths in the night. But when Shaul and Sila came around that prison, when they became imprisoned, you heard that until the singing, praying, began. Well, the shrieks and the terror of night are going to come. We're going to wake in the middle of the night sometimes afraid, and the first thing we must do is praise Heavenly Father. Instead of focusing on your problem and your sorrow and how is this going to work out, focus instead on Heavenly Father. Sing Him songs of joy. Pray the Scriptures. Sing the Scriptures. Those of you who have a nice Bible next to your bed, crack open that Bible and sing and pray. Don't worry about what somebody thinks is crazy or dumb or weird. That's awkward. That's the dumbest word I've heard. Well, that's creepy. That's my least favorite. Oh, that's so creepy. I hate hearing that. And then awkward. That's the new word. Even adults say awkward nowadays. I hate it. That's so awkward. We're afraid of being awkward? Are you kidding me? These men were chained to a wall, bleeding, chunks of their skin gone from their body, tortured. And yet in this prison, because of two people who could see past their circumstances, there was irrepressible joy. Oh, man, have you ever had irrepressible joy? Some of us have been in the darkness for so long, we don't remember what irrepressible joy is. But I'm here to tell you, the whole purpose of this program, the whole purpose of me even being here tonight is to tell you, see past your trial. See into the joy. Praise God in the storm. You see, these people in this prison, I'm telling you this, I don't think they ever heard anything like Shaul and Sila ever before. I don't think they ever had experienced anything like these men. Now, as the melody rang out through the dark, dang jail cells, something else happened. Something else indeed. The old building seemed to be shaking with the very power of this music. An earthquake was on. And God took this earthly prison, this little clay nothing of the ground he created, and with his hand he shook it. And he showed him who's boss. Just like a gambler. A gambler might shake a dice box and throw the dice out. He shook it. He threw it around and he tossed it about. And all the doors were thrown open and the fetters were shaken. They were released from their bondage. The feet and hands were free. I'm here to tell you, you can't imprison somebody who is totally and completely free. I talk about the Center for Self-Governance all the time. We talked about it in our open. We're going to have this class, uh, Constitution class on Sunday, next Sunday. Listen, the reason why the government right now is because we don't know the rules. We don't know the laws. We need to learn the system. We need to learn, and then we need to learn how to use the system. These men were prisoners only physically. They weren't bound in any prison. They weren't stuck behind any walls. Remember what it said. The Scripture said they were thrown into the inner prison, the darkest and the worst of the worst. But you can't, lock, you can't be locked up. You can't be imprisoned when you're a child of the Most High. 
when your heart and your soul is free. With the racket and the rolling earth, the jailer is shaken out of his complacency, out of his bed, and great terror comes upon him. Can you see him now as he picks himself up off the floor? He looks around in dismay. The walls are caving in. The doors are open. He is sure the prisoners are gone. Why did he think that? Because no one in their right mind would stay imprisoned when you are set free. He knows a few things. He knows that his life will be what has to be paid for losing these prisoners, even though it's not his fault. The earth shook, but he's going to pay with his life. He won't face the shame of it. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. So he says, I'm going to handle this myself. Better to inflict this justice upon myself. Better to swallow the sword. Better to fall on the sword and kill myself. So he draws his sword, as Scripture says, and he's and he's, he's ready. He's right there, and he's ready to go. He wasn't faking. He wasn't down. He was committed. I'm going to end this before they do. Right before he thrusts it before his heart, right, right here, right into his chest, ending his life, Paul's eyes were upon him, and he knew his intent. He knew what he was about to do, and he said, we're all here, jailer. Do yourself no harm. We chose to stay here and do the will of God in your life. That's why he said what he said. He said, hey, man, we're here. Don't kill yourself. Don't, don't freak out. Don't kill yourself. And when he said that, when Shaul and Silas, when they said this to this jailer, who was their torturer, there was love in that crying out. At that moment, there was tenderness in that moment. There was longing that the jailer simply couldn't understand. The reason why people around us don't want to come to Christ is because we don't show them Christ. Do you think this world is going to show people Jesus does not? That is our job. Have we shown our friends and our family and our neighbors something the love of which they simply cannot understand. You know what? He couldn't, he, he couldn't fail to realize, he couldn't grasp the might of this moment. Nobody stays around. And this very calloused man was touched deeply. He was touched deeply, so deep in his heart that he was struck. It, it was a terrible set of circumstances. An earthquake is a scary thing. I've been through multiple tornadoes, I can tell you. I've been through a couple earthquakes, I can tell you. They're scary. You are totally and completely helpless. Yet this hardened man is now gripped by another terror, the terror that has come through the presence of these strange men who have brought the things of eternity and made them seem real to him. And he was urged on by that new terror. He rushes to these men who had bleeding backs because of him, tattered, torn garments because of him, and he threw himself. He caused their pain, and now all of a sudden, he has thrown himself at their feet, and he asked this most powerful question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I'm aware of the fact that this jailer was a Roman heathen, and I'm not accusing him at all of being a great theologian. We don't know what he knew. We just knew what he was shown. We don't know what his religious experience was. We don't know what his Yeshua experience was. We don't know anything about it, but we know he was trained to hate Jews. He was trained to hate 
followers of the way. I don't know how intelligent he was. I don't know whether he could read or write or not. I do not know whether he was widely traveled. I don't know whether he was widely traveled or he'd never left this town. I don't know. I don't know anything of that, but I know this. I know that he asked the biggest question that ever fell from human lips. There can be no greater question than this. It was the greatest for him. It is the greatest for you. It is the greatest for me. What must I do to be saved? There is no question so big as that. And I'm wondering now if it's a big question for you. Remember, let's not make this question what it is not. It is not, what must I do to be decent? There's lots of people out there that behave decently, that behave morally, that behave rightly, that have never asked themselves this question. They've never answered this question. It's not, the question is not, what must I do to be respectful and respectable? There are lots of people out there that are very respectful people. Yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Are no more saved than to be a man on the moon. How about respectable people? There's lots of people out there that have a great reputation myself included, and no one sees what's in our heart. They're respectable, all right, but they are not supreme. You see, this is not the question he had to ask. What must I do to get rich? Millions of us are asking that question every day as if it was the one question of eternal importance, but I'm telling you, that is not that was asked. That's not the supreme and eternal question that we must all ask. It is not, what must I do to be beautiful? You know, beauty is such a thing nowadays, right? You watch television and all you see are these commercials of these unattainably beautiful faces and figures. And we say, I might as well give up and have me another ice cream shortcake if there's one left. Right? You see, here's the thing. We look at ourselves, I have a face for radio. I look at myself and I say, I'm never going to be beautiful. Not once, not ever. Some of us, we make that the central deal. And even some people who God has chosen to make you beautiful, that's your constant pursuit. I've got to be more beautiful. I've got to maintain my beauty. I've got to enhance my beauty. Yet, just as God gave you to the world, you are beautiful. That's not even the question. I'm sorry to say, many are missing the answer to this very, very much. But that's not the big question. The supreme question is, what must I do to be saved? What is implied in this question when it is asked intelligently? I wonder if you've ever wondered about that. There is implied, first of all, that there is an absolute difference between being saved and being lost. And I want to change that word lost. I don't like the word lost We are never lost if we are a creation of the living God. He knows where we are. And if we're being honest, we know where he is. We just choose to run from God. So I'm going to use that term, not lost, but running from God. There is implied in this that there are two classes of people, not the cultured and the uncultured, not the learned and the unlearned. They are the saved and the unsaved. They are the ones who have life and the ones who have not life. And I'm perfectly aware that today in this country that this kind of dogma is not popular. They say that's very dogmatic. That's going to cause a rift and a division. But I call your attention to the fact that they are divisions that are made 
in the Brit Hadashah or the New Testament. They are the divisions that Yeshua made. He put folks into two classes and only two, folks. There were two classes to Yeshua. You are either a follower of the way or you were running from God. There were two gates. One was broad and the other was narrow. There were two foundations on which man might build. One was of sand and the other was of rock. Mind you, he didn't divide men into the perfect and imperfect. Thank God. I'd have no hope. But those that had life and those that did not have it, you see, that was the difference. We, we can be so supremely jacked up with our hurts, habits, and hang-ups, the things that we struggle with that are so deep inside us that every day is a struggle. We can have that. We are not perfect. Some folks strive to be perfect. I know some people that strive to be perfect, and they are heck to be around. You don't want to be around those folks. Newsflash. I used to be that guy. Yeah, believe it or not. Perfectionist, obsessive, compulsive. In this room can tell you the story about leaving my workplace. I'm locking the door now. 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 Getting 40 minutes on the way home. Did I lock the door? Uh, I think you said you did. You did say you did. Well, I can't be sure. I can't be sure. I can't be sure. Drive all the way back. Guess what I found? The door was locked every single time. I'm not perfect. I got a lot of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. But he didn't look for the perfect. He didn't divide us into perfect and imperfect, but into those that had life and those who do not have life. And it was Yeshua himself that said, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. So this question, if it means anything, means that there is such a thing as being saved, and there is such a thing as running from God. And that fact is recognized throughout the entire Holy Bible. This question implies, in the second place, a consciousness of running from God. What must I do to be saved? The inverse of that is, I am running from God. He recognized that he was running from God. How did he recognize this? He recognized this in the most unlikely. You say, but Shaul and Silah were, they're famous people. They got multiple books in the you know, Bible. They're, I mean, everybody knows about them. They were a pain in this jailer's. If he was mad at his spouse, he could take out the beatings on his prisoners. These were nothing to him. And yet these two very nothing men chose, instead of whining and crying about their circumstance and their situation, of being mired in their circumstance, decided, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to sing. When this man asked that question, there were many things about which he was uncertain. He was uncertain as to how he was going to get out of his darkness. You see, he suddenly realized, I am in darkness. And these men are most assuredly in the light. He was uncertain as to how he was to be saved. But one thing was sure. He was dead sure that he was running from God. Sometimes it's even more important to know what you aren't than what you are. Amen? This is very important to know what you need. Look, you've got to know what you don't need sometimes in order to know what you need. You know, some folks this past week are out there in Radio Land and maybe even here. You learned what you didn't need, and then you learned very powerfully what you thought you needed is not what you needed, that you needed an altogether different thing. You've got to know what you don't need sometimes in order to know what you need. He didn't try to dodge that fact. He didn't try to shut his eyes to it. He didn't try in any way to deny 
this fact. And if you're here in the live audience or if you're listening on the, on the radio around the world, you're listening with a God-made heart inside your chest that for now beats without the very God that created it. And one day, a day which none of us know, your God-made heart will stop beating. I hope you won't deny this. I hope you will not make this mistake. I hope you won't deny the truth. I hope you will not run from God. You see, denying the truth doesn't make it a lie. If you have not yet taken Yeshua Hamashiach as your personal Savior, you are most assuredly running from God. I'm not saying that because, look, I'm not, I'm not making a judgment against you personally. I'm not saying because you're running from God and, I, and I've already grabbed God that I'm somehow better than you or anybody out there. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm saying I've been found. I was lost in my own doing, and I've been found. I'm most assuredly not better than most people in this world, but I know this. I am found. I'm saying that I am found and that you are running from God. And the best thing you can do, the first step to be taken in the direction of getting saved is to realize you're running from God. A man will not send for a physician until he believes he is sick. He will not try to learn unless he realizes he is ignorant. Neither will he turn to God for salvation unless he realizes that he is running from God. Oh, it is a good day for a man when he gets a square look at himself. I don't like look at myself. I, this, I'm being real with you. I don't like to look at myself in the mirror. I don't like to see my reflection. I don't like to see my face. I know who I am, and I know I don't deserve to be found, but I am because of whose I am. I am found because of the finder. It is a great day when a man like me has a glimpse of myself as God sees me, not as I see me. It is a great hour when, conscious of his guilt, a man bows himself in the presence of him who alone can save and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This question implies in the third place not only that the man is running from God who asked it, but that there is a possibility of his being saved. Do you get that? He asked the question because he realized, I can be saved. There is a possibility that I can be saved. What must I do to be saved? And here was a man conscious of being a man running from God, conscious of being sin-scarred, stained and guilty, yet he believes, and he is absolutely right in believing, as I was right to believe, and I struggle with it to this day, that salvation is possible for him. It's possible for him, this jailer, who beat part of his job, who tortured people as part of his job, who imprisoned innocent people as part of his job, and he took delight in it. To go from that one moment to the very next moment to acknowledge I was running, and I run no more. He believes that he can be saved unto the uttermost. He believes that there is such a thing as salvation, and it is possible for him, even him, to lay hold of it. You have no hope if you don't believe that salvation is possible for you. You say, I've been terrible. You don't know, Dr. Sean. Trust me. I know. If you don't think it's possible for you, then you are truly, indeed, in a terrible place. But you're in the same place. All of us who humble ourselves before Christ have been. 
But that's not where we stay. And you too must realize that you can be saved. Otherwise, it will do you no good to realize the fact that you're a sinner. It's not enough to know that you're running from God. You must also believe that you can be found by God. It is not enough to realize that you are weak. You must believe that it is absolutely possible for you to be strong. You must believe that even a fluctuating Simon Peter, Kepha, can be made into a rock. Man, we can't look at Kepha's life or Peter and say that he had it all figured out all the way. But what did he become? He became a cornerstone of our faith, power of God to remake men. Otherwise, for you, the question is only a question of black, dark, hateful despair. I'll remind you of the thief on the cross. One guy had no hope, or so he thought. The other guy had hope. He recognized with whom he was dying. And he said, remember me. He didn't have time to get it all figured out. He didn't have time to learn a bunch of verses. He didn't even have time, I know the Baptists are going to cringe, to be baptized. He just had time to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In that moment, that day, he was in paradise. This question implies in the fourth place a willingness to be saved. Listen, you've got to be willing to be saved. What must I do to be saved? This man, this tough jailer, not asking this question to gather material for a future argument, he's not a speculator. He's not a trifler. He's not even asking it because he's intellectually curious. He is not simply asking that he may know the conditions of salvation. He's not asking for the conditions of it. He's asking with the earnest purpose in his heart to meet those conditions, whatever they are. This question implies in the fifth place that while salvation is a possibility for you, you must do something in order to entertain it. I've ticked off the back you off again. If you think that you can text a number, if you think that you can raise your pinky like you're, you're in some high-dollar auction and you're saved because you've been spared of embarrassment, you've been spared of acknowledging your acknowledgement of God, I've got another thing in store for you. You absolutely are not saved. You are dancing with no music. You must do something in order to obtain it. What must I do to be saved? What sort of answer would you expect to a question like that? What did the Apostle Paul, Shaul, say? Did he say, do nothing? Let the matter alone. Forget it. Just drift. This is what many of us are doing all around the world. People listening right now, you're drifting. You're doing nothing. You're postponing the something that you need to do. Doing nothing won't get you anywhere but nowhere. You see, Shaul said nothing of the kind. He told this man something very specific he must do. And this man knew, as you and I know, that if, we're ever, if we are ever saved, we've got to do something in order to get saved. I say every one of us knows that. We all know that. And yet too few of us live as though this were really true. We can just drift. We can just wait. There's no rush. We seem to think salvation is something that we're going to stumble upon by accident. We seem to think that, well, I'll get around to it. I come around, everything falls into place. That's just like not only salvation for those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, who have earnestly sought Christ, but you're in a trial. You have got to find Christ by seeking him. You've got to find your answer by seeking him. Not a bunch of worldly things. The world has no answers for you. We seem to think it's something that we're going to receive with absolutely no effort on our part. We just sit back, we text a number, we lift our pinky, and we're good to go. We act as if we thought we, 
It might be slipped into our pockets, you know, as we walk by. It's going to pop into our pockets just automatically, maybe while we're sleeping. Maybe it'll get dropped in our coffin when we've died. Ask the question of yourself intelligently. Ask it heart deep. What must I do to be saved? Then, only then can you realize that you and only you must do something. This question implies in the next place that the conditions of salvation are not optional, that it is not up to you, that it is not up to me to decide what we will do in order to be saved. You can accept salvation or you can reject it. You can meet these conditions or you can refuse to meet them. But one thing you can't do, you cannot decide upon which terms you will surrender. You can't decide the terms. You can't set the terms for your surrender. If you're saved at all, you must surrender unconditionally. You must surrender all. So the question is, what must I do to be saved? The question is not, what is the expedient thing? What is the respectable thing? What is the popular thing? These conditions are not of your choosing, and they are not of mine. God has made them, and you and I dare not change them. You see, over years, the postmodern emergent church has changed the conditions upon which we must be saved. We may be saved. You might be saved. Text this number. Send me an email. Maybe call me and get an appointment. We don't want anybody to come up front. We don't want anybody to raise their hand. We don't want anybody to stand. We don't want anyone to be embarrassed. We don't want to go and Guess what? If I speak up at my job training, I could get fired. God doesn't honor that. Guess what? If I, if I stand strong and I say what my beliefs are, I'm going to take a lot of heat. I won't be popular with people at work. I'm already lonely. Guess what? God doesn't honor that. But you can't be mealy-mouthed about salvation. He tells us how to do it. He tells us what we absolutely must do. Last of all, this question implies that salvation is an individual matter. You see, he didn't say, fellas, now we're here together. I know we weren't friends just a few minutes ago, but guess what? We're friends now, mostly because you're unlocked. I'm one guy. You could gang up on me. I don't want to die. No, it wasn't that at all. It wasn't a, it's, not a, it's not a group decision. It's not something that you're going to get a bunch of people to come together with you and make that decision with you. Oh, I want to bring a friend with me. I don't want to go until I have a friend. I don't want to come, you know, talk to the pastor about salvation because I want to have a friend with me. I don't want to go places where I don't have friends with me. It's not a question of what God must do. God's already done it. God's already done it. God's already done the hard work. He's made full provision for the salvation for the whole world. He didn't skip a single person. It's not what you may have a great church, and I hope that you do, but it's not what the church must do. It's not even what the preacher must do. It's not what this man that is beside me, the man that is behind me or in front of me must do. The question to my own heart and soul is what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? You must do something, but there are many things that we are doing that will not save us. If you expect to be saved in the first place, do not depend on your own goodness. All your righteousness are but as but filthy rags. Do not count on your own decency. No man was ever saved that way. I challenge you to find one single person who was ever saved by being a real decent person. They're still decent people, but they're running from God. 
I was giving a speech some years ago, and I met a young guy who told me he was good enough without Yeshua Hamashiach. He called him Jesus Christ. Of course he wasn't saved. A man who says that virtually, a man who says this virtually tells God, I don't need you. Tells him that he's misunderstood before all eternity, that Calvary was a wasted tragedy so far as he himself is personally concerned. Neither will you be saved by trusting in another man's badness. You can say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Sean. I'm not as bad as Sean, so by comparison, listen, this, I'm, I've done bad stuff, but Sean, wow, he really has done some bad stuff. You don't get saved by comparison and contrast. I know what some of you are saying to yourselves as I preach. You're telling yourselves one of the oldest lies that has ever been told. You're saying, I would be a follower of Jesus Christ, but there are too many hypocrites in the church. How many men give that as a reason? How many women give that as a reason? But you know what? It's no man's reason. Say, well, I'm, I'm not going to church because that's a messed up church. Church, and they don't have this and they don't have that. I'm just not going to go. They frustrate me, so I'm not going to go. And you know what? I'm not going to be saved. I'm not going to place my faith in Christ. You know why? Because there's hypocrites in that church. How many have heard that? Believe me, the shortcomings and the sins of my brother are mighty poor things to depend upon for my own personal salvation, especially in light of my own mountain of sins. I want to remind you, you will not be saved by seeking the easy way. You will never win by catering to your own pride and your own cowardice. I was speaking in a southern city. I'll say it. It was Florida a few years ago. And at the close of one of the services, a young lady came forward to shake hands with the preacher. And I signed a book for her. And she, and she did, as she did this, she comes up to me and she says, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. And I was all excited, you know. I congratulated her for her decision, but she answered in what appeared to be kind of a flippant, you know, new agey sort of way. And she said, oh, I don't mean right now. I mean I'm going to very soon. And I looked at her with the, you know, kind of the dog face, tilts his head a little bit and goes, huh? You see, she continued, it's like this. I'm going, in a few days, I'm going to visit some of my relatives. They live way out in the country. There's going to be a revival nearby because they've already been inviting me about 900 times to go to this revival. It's going to be easy for me to make this decision there because nobody knows me. I'm going to go to the revival by myself. They'll never expect me to go. My family, where, where is so-and-so? Well, I don't know. I know where she's not. She's not at that revival. I'll tell you that. She said, so I'm going to go there. Nobody will know me. But here it's different. Everybody knows me right here. I don't have the courage. I simply don't have the courage to come out and take an open stand for Jesus. You know what? She went into the country as she planned, but she wasn't saved. Of course not. She wasn't saved. Nobody ever found salvation by catering to their own cowardice, to their own convenience and pride and seeking an easy way. Nobody ever came to Christ that way. And you know what? I don't know if she ever did place her faith in Christ. What must I do to be saved? There's an answer to this eternal question. It's an answer that is absolutely dependable. There is nothing in all the world of which I am more sure than I am of the correctness of the answer I'm about to give. I am as sure of, of this answer as I am my own existence. I'm as sure of it as I am of the fact of God. I wonder if you here in the audience and all around the world are interested to know the answer. Some of you might be saying to yourself, well, you know what? I've already done this. When I was five years old, I did this. 
Why, why are you preaching to me? You know we're all saved. You know we're all saved. I'll tell you something. As jacked up as I am, I had the privilege and honor of leading the chairman of deacons of a large church to Christ after I preached in the church one time. Remember that this, it is the answer to your supreme question. This is the answer of, of all the questions in the world. This is the one. It is the answer to the most important question that has ever been asked. It's the most important that you will ever be called upon to take action upon in the world. Does the prospect of an answer quicken your heartbeat? Does it shake you out of your lethargy into your most intense interest? It ought to if it doesn't. For the answer that I give is not the answer of a mere speculator or a dreamer. It is the answer of inspiration. It is the answer of those whose truth has been tested by personal experience, by countless millions. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Yeshua, Hamashiach, and thou shalt be saved. What is it to believe? This is where we get jacked up in the church. We think we've got it all covered. We don't ask ourselves this question. What is it to believe on the Lord Yeshua Hamashiach? Is it that we're perfect? No. Is it to believe that Yeshua Hamashiach is a fancy talker? Is it that he was a great prophet? It is to believe that Yeshua Hamashiach can do what he claims to do and what he has promised to do and to depend on him to do it. You see, if you believe he can do what he claims to do and what he's promised to do, but you don't depend on him to do it in your life, you have missed the mark. Mr. Moody tells us how that he was in a cellar one day, and he looked up and he saw his little girl making an effort to see him. She couldn't see him because it was dark in the cellar. And Mr. Moody said, jump, daddy will catch you. And instantly that little girl jumped. Now that was faith. That was believing in her father. So the jailer believed on the Lord Yeshua Hamashiach, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He depended on him, and then everything changed. But what happened? He was saved. That very moment, Hamashiach came. The Messiah came into this man's heart, and he became a new creation. He became a possession of the Most High. He was possessed of a new joy. He became possessed of a new tenderness. Did you notice what he did? He took water and he washed the stripes of these preachers. Shaul and Silas, or Paul and Silas, were bleeding when they came into prison. But the jailer didn't care. But now he had found Jesus and he had already begun to be, be a partaker in the divine nature. A new love had come to him. He had become tender where he was cruel before. You wonder why you're so afraid and you're so angry. Because you haven't been made tender by the Christ. Even so does the power of Yeshua HaMashiach to make men and women all over the world. Over and completely. Now this question. Do you want to be saved? If you do want to be saved, you can be. It's the surest thing in all of the world. It's as sure as the fact that night follows day. It is more sure than the fact that if you sow wheat, you will reap wheat. That if you believe on the Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, you will and you shall be saved. 
Listen, test the matter in your own heart right now. You don't need a fancy church. If you're sitting in your living room or you're sitting in your kitchen or you're sitting in your car, test this matter in your own heart. You'll know the blessed fact thing no one can take away from you, your own experience. This will be an experience that nobody ever, no man with any power can ever take from you. Hebrews 11.6 in the English Standard Version goes this way, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. My friends, I, I want this to, is, this is the seminal question of life. This is the thing that we're all here for. Have I placed my faith in Christ? But even more than that, do I believe that he is able to save me? Not just once when I was five years old, not just once when I was 11, not just once when I was 17, not just once when I was 19, not just once when I was 21, not just once when I was 23, not just once when I'm 30, not just once when I'm 40, not just once when I'm 50, but every day. Do you believe that Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, not only that he can save you, but that he will save you? And then do you live the next day and the day after that and the day after that as though you have been rescued? You turned from running from God, and now you are found. You are safe and secure in his arms. If you don't know that, then you are running from God. I encourage you to stop running.